0: Hello everyone to Cardinal Directions, the show where four dudes band together to talk about the craft of being a dungeon master, share their successes and their failures and hopefully learn together with you what they can do to improve. Additionally, we just like talking. This episode is officially the first as the last one was erased from existence by mind flayers. During the podcast we'll be executing a concept we call two wrongs and two rights Two of us will present examples of good DMing while the remaining two will present examples of not so good DMing. And after that, we'll talk over what we can take away from what we did well and how we can avoid repeating our mistakes. So without further ado, get yourself a snack, get yourself a drink, and welcome to Carnal Directions.
1: Okay guys, welcome to Cardinal Directions. Uh, we'll discuss the topic of um, combat encounters and in D&D 5e and uh, balance uh and how to balance your encounters as a DM. Uh if everybody can introduce themselves again for the second episode now. Uh I'll I'll start. Uh, I'm Pavel and I've been DMing D&D for uh 4 years now. How about you Nick?
2: Yeah, I'm Nick. Uh, I've been playing D&D for three years now and DMing for a year and a half, maybe.
0: And uh, I'm Axel. Uh, I've been DMing for about three years in two different campaigns. Uh, Glad to be here. What about you, Pat?
3: Uh, I'm Pat. I've been playing tabletop RPGs for about four years and I've been DMing for uh, one and a half years, probably.
1: Maybe a bit more. nice uh for uh, today's topic we decided to draw slots on if we're gonna do a right or a wrong for our combat encounters so how are we gonna do that uh well
2: that's a good question let's take a random number generator between uh one and ten and Whoever is closest to the number uh, can select their encounter, and then we'll go opposite of that up. So, for example, if the number's 1 and Axel picked 2, he can choose if he takes a right or wrong. And then Pat, who's got a 3, he takes the opposite of what Axel chose, and then we go up until the one who's furthest away from the number knows what to
1: do. Okay.
0: That seems like the easiest way to do it, I'm so let's do it.
1: to complicate it for me. I'm uh, gonna right. post on... Uh...
0: All right, uh, I got an 8.
2: Channel my number. Yeah, same. I've picked a number.
1: What are you using to so random it?
2: Eh? I'll just type in random gen- uh, number generator on Google and. You can, you
1: can already a 10 with the bot. Uh,
2: not on this server, you can't. All right, I'm going to generate a number right now. You all got your number picked. Axel, yes. you have a number? Yes. Pat, you have a number? You
0: guys so all got numbers. We're not using a
2: physical dice. Physics are evil. I <laughs> <laughs> got a 9. Okay, so, I picked 4, mm-hmm. and the number that's generated is a 2, so I have a 4, that's four so far. I have an 8.
0: I have an 8 as well.
2: Oh. Uh-huh. Alright. And Pat, you have? A 9. A 9. Okay. Alright. So Alright. Yeah, I'm picking the wrong encounter. Okay. I'm gonna tell you all about how you're not supposed to do it. <laughs>
0: Alright, but what about you, Pat? You got a four?
2: I mean, what?
3: Why am I going... F- what? What is this system? <laughs> I, I rolled the on, highest, why am I going second?
0: Yeah, like, you rolled the highest that's number. That's the you're law in of nine. D&D. No, you yeah, had it knowing.
3: Sure, if I can decide, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you. No, you're not, taking,
2: I, you're not deciding, you're taking the opposite of what I chose, which is the writing count. Oh, on.
3: okay, sure.
2: Yeah, and then Perfect. it's between Pavel and Axel, who both have an 8 so you you going gonna have to know. So I'll think of a number between 1 and 10, and you tell me your number now, Axel.
0: All right, I got an 8. We got the same number.
2: I know, which is why I'm taking a new number. Okay. (laughs) Sure, I have a number. (laughs) I I, I took one. And Axel? I got four. Right, my number is a 7, so Axel, you take a right encounter and Pavel chooses... uh, No, uh, Axel has a wrong encounter, and Pavel has a right encounter.
0: Okay. All right, that was the easy, the easiest way to do this at the start of the episode, but now we got hey, it.
2: If, if that's already confusing to you, wait until we actually start about building encounters.
0: <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> nah, but the goal of, uh, of this podcast is here to make it a bit easier for everyone to build encounters, learn from our mistakes, and make sure you don't repeat them. Um, so uh, we have Pavel who chose the wrong. Um, and... Uh, how about you explain to us uh, what your encounter was, and we can talk about what went wrong with it. Alright, so how about you start and tell us, uh, what your encounter was, and then we can talk about why it didn't work.
1: Sure. It was an encounter in a module. It was in Curse of Strad. Spoiler alert! Spoilers. I think, uh, I think it's not a major spoiler but um, it was about a hag. There are lots of hags, so you can be pretty generic. Um, It was a hag that had a giant creature at its side, uh, which apparently wasn't there, its house. Um, And this house uh, was pretty strong. And the encounter was balanced around the idea that players would sneak to the hag Uh and ambush her, maybe, or do diplomacy. Either one of two. What my players decided to do instead was to go around the ha- uh, hag's ha- hut and bam their shields uh, with their swords to let their ple- presence be known to draw the hag out of I- uh, her hut. Leaving her time to prepare for the combat and enabling her monster the monster uh, the house which animated subst- killed one of my my rogues players in uh, in in the first shot and in the second two hits he instantly died uh, at level uh, i think you were level five or something i think you were around there i think so yeah and um um well, it happens, they didn't know it was a module. This was till till the, here. Uh, they wiped, they made a new party. The second party did super metagame uh, gaming information. And they went uh, later on, not from the first, but later on to the same place. They discussed tactics, how to deal with the hack that they didn't know were there. And, uh, Uh, They also polymorphed her even though they couldn't and that was my mistake because she as a shapeshifter couldn't be polymorphed and they eventually killed her. At the moment it was cool everybody was happy but um, when at the end of the combat when I realized oh she's a shapeshifter she she shouldn't be polymorphed all my players were like uh, very disappointed Like their this encounter was robbed from them. They shouldn't have won it necessarily. And uh, Yeah, overall it was a sour feeling And yeah, that was my bad encounter
0: Yeah, so what I take from this is uh, The encounter ended up being unsatisfying in both cases like the first yes. case you had uh, basically they got destroyed and the second case they destroyed the hag uh, so I think that's a good kind of like that's a good way to present uh, the interest of difficulty and not only pure difficulty in terms of HP and damage per round, but also difficulty in terms of what the encounter is set out to be. Um, I've had encounters in my campaigns that are supposed to be unbeatable or are um, not supposed to be at least beatable by a, a frontal attack, and it seems like the the Hag encounter was kind of like that. Um... However, even the second time, when they didn't attack directly, they ended up kind of falling flat because there was no tension.
1: There there was tension, but the way the tension was released at the end was unsatisfying.
0: Mm-hmm. Nick and Pat, do you guys have any tips uh, concerning keeping tension or making it uh, flashy in a way so that during the during the game you can make the players really feel like it's a tense moment and not like, oh, we just polymorphed the hag. It's going to be easy.
2: Pat, why don't you go first? I would love we'll to. Work. Thank you very much,
3: Nick. Um, so, uh, I think, well, obviously looking at it from perspective of um, the future, it's easier to like say what could have been done. I think maybe a good way, especially in a module would be to subvert expectation, so like the party's metagames, they are oh well, we're going to kill a hag. As a DM, you flip it on their head, maybe, um, I I mean, since that was forgotten that time, but since the hag can polymorph, maybe the hag is going to pretend to be an adventurer or someone. Maybe it's not going to be in a hat, maybe there's going to be like a major image around the hat to basically make it look like it's not there even. Um, or like any other number of things uh, that could have been done to maybe surprise them, make it so that they also feel like this um, feeling of ex- exploration, like, oh, we came to the same place and we have different content, interesting. Um, I don't know if that's the right way to go about it, so I might say that's like, well, we're not keeping to the module, but uh, I think that would be one way to keep the tension and stakes. High.
2: I think that's a very good idea, adding on to that subverting expectations trope. I think what you can also do, uh, I don't know how well modules lend itself to to doing that, but you can reskin monsters and that's a favorite way of mine to keep players engaged, especially if they're metagaming. If they know the monster handbook and they know all the stat blocks, just reflavoring it and making a monster look different and behave different but still like within the rules is a great way to keep the players on their toes so they don't know what to expect.
0: So far, we had a couple of ways uh, we talked about of, you know, keeping uh, the the tension there. We had keeping surprise uh, from Pat, like trying to maybe hide the monster and make sure the situation that the players are in is not the one they're expecting. And we also had subverting expectations in terms of just changing the monster straight up. Uh, Of course, you know, depending on modules and homebrew, that kind of depends on the kind of campaign you're running. But these, I feel, are two good ways in any case to change up the scenario and make sure that uh, things are a bit unexpected. Players aren't in familiar territory.
2: Oh yeah, you don't even have to change the monster that much. You don't even have to like make a troll a-, a wolf now or something. You can just say that the uh, troll has instead of like the usual skin that it's uh, drawn with in the play- in the monster handbook, it has. I don't know, red skin. And as a player, you'll be like, oh, is, is this troll making more fire resistant than it usually is? Or why, why is it skin red? Uh, it's just flavor maybe, but it keeps people thinking because suddenly something's different. It doesn't even have to be a big change.
0: I think there's one thing to keep in mind that's very important, uh, especially doing what Nick is talking about, is going to be foreshadowing. Uh, Making sure that the players, while they do not know all of the truth, have at least some idea that something is off. That way, when the final reveal comes through, they have a previous information that they can then look back to and say, Ah, we should have seen it coming. And that feels much more deserved than, you know, if it happens all of a sudden. I think that's pretty much what uh, we can say about this encounter. Pretty simple encounter, pretty simple problems um let's shift to a right encounter and see what was done well what kept the players uh on their toes so let's uh maybe shift to pat okay so
3: i will have to preface this with a statement uh, obviously picking right encounter trying to find something that i think i did well Uh, it's kind of difficult uh, so i went for not necessarily light, but I think interesting is right as well. So it's an interesting, maybe slightly unique, um, although not groundbreaking by any means encounter. Um, I had in my previous campaign that we played, uh, a session where we were missing one player who was like, uh, we are doing their backstory. So it was very important that uh, that I didn't want to move the main plot because the character was instrumental in that part of the plot was missing. And we also had like a guest character to show up. So I basically made a little encounter in like a uh, pocket dimension, the characters go through like a random portal just for a moment just to see this encounter and the encounter was, the theme of the encounter was like it's like the pocket dimension is like in between the uh, material world and the world of, uh, and the plane of mechanics. it was like all uh, clockwork-y and there was a machine there that activated when the players came in and basically uh, the encounter uh, was built in such a way that the, the, to defeat the monster you had to use a, a specific um, mm, a combination of elemental attacks, you have to add, deal a certain type of damage in order, uh, there, was, uh, there was like little lights that like light up with colors that kind of indicated the elemental type so so the players could figure it out, and after a few attacks, they realize that or they're not doing damage to the monster, but there's some sort of electrical circuit activating, um, and they figure out what they need to do. But they're but they didn't have enough health actually to finish the encounter at that point. Maybe maybe I did it too strong. The monster kept like attacking each turn, so it was basically like race against time to figure out this logic puzzle. Um, and uh, they used they both high level play, so they used a six level spell to get out of there to teleport out. Um, but uh, I thought that was I was I was happy with that encounter. So that's like an example of maybe something original.
1: Question mark. Yeah. For sure. As a um, participant in that encounter, the thing I liked about it it's because it was a puzzle. That um uh implied a lot of your character's combat capabilities uh into the puzzle. Which uh, gave it more realism and um usefulness in the way you build your character. Um what I is is also one of the few encounters that I liked even though I lost it in the end. We I had to teleport everybody out. Uh So yeah, that says a lot about the encounter. Uh, It was, uh, it was close and at the end, there was lots of tension. We actually had like a pretty strong chance, a pretty strong chance to finish the puzzle, but we had a choice. Um, We either had the choice of uh, risking, if somebody, f- we were low HP, we were all low HP, and we had still like three symbols of elemental damage to fill up. And if somebody fell, he wasn't willing anymore, so I couldn't teleport him out. And we were all low HP, and the monsters was doing AOE damage. So if we stayed more, we would have risked people dying and unable to teleport because they're not willing anymore. Um, so at that point, they were like debating if we should run or not. And in the end, we decided, fuck this, is not worth it. We, were, we teleported out of there.
2: Yeah. Yes. I especially like the part where you, where you incorporated like the, the the elements, I think that's a very ingenious way of using the environment to incorporate counter because I found often encounters are just, I'm moving my token on the battle map on roll 20 and then I roll dice, declare my attack. And making the environment part of the encounter is always more fun. That's a really good good way to engage the players. Uh,
1: I would say the environment was the encounter because the monster didn't was unkillable. Um, and uh, it was also nice. it wasn't not too hard or too easy to figure out. For example, there was a green crystal and that green crystal could be either poison damage or could be acid damage. Mm. You weren't sure necessarily. And uh, in the end, we had to try both uh, poison and acid on it and figure it out. And if we failed, the puzzle was reset. Yeah,
3: it was a little bit harsh, because if you got the order wrong, it would go back to all, all the lights went out, and you had to do yeah. fire, cold, acid, or whatever. And, and yeah, was- in,
1: in the correct order uh, also.
0: Mm. Well, I think we were talking about foreshadowing just before. And I think that's a good example of foreshadowing. Having um, mechanics of the fight that aren't normal, but also managing to convey these mechanics through visuals here. And uh, there's a lot that can't really be taught about this because it's all about running the game and while you're in the session explaining to the players, giving hints. Um, That's not really something you can teach at a distance. But I think the principles you can keep What I've heard is good foreshadowing, an engaging puzzle that tried to engage everyone, whether you're combat-focused or not, you have options. Um, Stakes, as Pavel just talked about, because lives were in danger and whoever could not make it would have to be left behind. Um... While it's not always smart, I think, to have super high stakes on, on everything, because then, you know, over time it kind of loses its luster. I think it's good to have these few fights specific, or, or puzzles even, um, have stakes so that the players really feel that their characters could die, their characters could be gone, or their NPCs that they love could be gone, their castles could be gone, maybe. Just having something that weighs in the balance and makes them want to win the encounter. Uh, but also discussion on other means of winning, uh, which is interesting. What do you guys think about uh, optional objectives or more, like, different objectives than just killing someone in a combat encounter?
2: Like capturing, or...?
0: Mm-hmm. Have you uh, successfully had any examples of that, just as a, a quick side note?
1: I mean, capturing could be an option, or it's always an option True. in my campaign. Um... Uh, It was never the goal, never the ultimate goal. And sometimes the players can have the goal to capture, like they want a purple worm egg, or maybe they want uh, a wolf pup. But uh, that's the goal that the players make, not that I impose. Necessarily. I see. Um... I
3: like, uh, I've been actually trying to incorporate in some of the new encounters I was thinking of recently. I like to make it so that sometimes the whatever enemy force the players encounter has like some other goal uh, than to just kill everything that's moving. So uh, there be, how to put it, then I can put like a stronger enemy or more enemies because they're not going to all attack the players. Some of them are going to try and maybe kidnap villagers. And if the players say just one now they talk to them, they can talk to that n p c and they save lives right It's also a reward in and of itself it's like a secondary objective, especially uh, at low level where you can make like more exciting combat, and the players are just a part of that fight without at the same time role playing fifty cars and fifty bandits fighting in a war. You can just have some of the guys are just busy you know doing something else, setting fire to the house, takes an action I don't know.
0: I think that also helps with immersion, right? Because the bandits, at first, they don't come to the town to kill the adventurers or try to and then fail miserably. They come to the town for a a reason. And having that reason in the game actually mechanically displayed makes it even more of a, a real thing that then the players can interact with. And maybe there are other solutions, maybe they don't have to kill the bandits, they can just fix the underlying problem.
3: Yeah, and it also uh, it gives you some flexibility as a DM because if you have something like that in your back pocket, then when there's a perfectly good reason, while well, you're not gonna just smack someone, even though you know like your players are losing, maybe they have a hard time. You don't want to multi-attack them again or something because it's just you're you already you know that you're winning kind of, and it, the tension will, be, will just go all to shit. And maybe it's like not a session that's worth DPKing it. Players, well, that character can now do something else that makes sense for them to do. You can you can balance. You can decide how many of the bandits are gonna focus on the play.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Right. You know, and if it's too easy, well, some of the bandits are coming to help. Nice, <laughs> people. You know.
2: Right. Well, that's a good segue into reasons for encounters. I think bad encounters they don't really have um, a a root in the story. That you're they they just pop up, and I think. A lot of beginner DMs, because I noticed that in myself, are um, relying on like random encounter tables, which is easy, you know, it makes prepping easy and you're like, oh, I have at least something planned if my players go somewhere. And um, the problem with that is though that random encounter tables don't factor in why you have an encounter. Right? And suddenly your players are facing like three, four dire wolves, and it's like, well, why why are they here?
1: I guess it depends on how roleplay heavy your campaign is.
2: That is very true, but with the bad notes, like, right, like Axel said, at least they have a reason to be there. It makes it more immersive, mm-hmm. right? And of course, you can always say, well, it depends on how much roleplay or roleplay heavy your campaign is in regards to encounters. Uh, I, I just think that to make an encounter better, you should always factor in why is the encounter here? Why do I need this encounter? Even if it is random, right? Why do I need a random encounter?
0: I agree a hundred percent. I think every every encounter you put in your game should have a purpose, and if it does not have one when you create it, maybe you know, maybe you just had uh, you just wanted to have an encounter before the boss because this is the nd 5 e and you can't just most of the time just put a boss against your players when they're fully rested. So you have an encounter before, even if it's just the encounter before the boss. I think it should have some other purpose than just being an encounter before the boss. Maybe there's some foreshadowing of the boss's mechanics. Maybe it's an NPC that you can meet and then later on you can do something with it. But I think there should be something, at least, behind the encounter. (laughs) Well, I thought that was a really good segue into uh, my wrong. Uh, What I bring as an encounter for today. So, uh, one of the encounters that I did...
2: I thought yours was the
1: right. Well, I did the wrong, so... He yeah. The right. Well, it
0: doesn't... I don't think it matters, uh, altogether. we'll find... We, why
2: did we... why did we spend ten minutes drawing lots <laughs> That of them is if we like <laughs> <just> deviate <laughs> anyway? <laughs> that's, <Because> that's, <laughs> we can choose a take-two where we do the opposite. Yeah, from, um, sure. It's professional.
0: Alright, <laughs> well, the encounter I brought, um and I, I thought of for a wrong today... Was one that I did in my offline campaign ab- about a year ago at this point. Uh, the players at this point were in an arc fighting a very large wyvern um, that was terrorizing the lands, and the wyvern was living in this large mountain where uh, all these lizard folk would live uh, as a people. And the players were there as enemies of the lizard folk along with an army, and they were supposed to infiltrate the mountain and then. Um, Figure out what was inside, maybe sabotage some uh, some of their plans, and then get out. The problem was that the encounter didn't have a purpose. The encounter was kind of a, a bit of filler, almost. Or, I can say, uh, looking back, was more of my inability to move to the next scene. And so what happened was, the player sabotaged uh, some of the food supplies, fought a general. And then came the moment for escape but the players didn't want to escape they wanted to stay for a bit and uh, kind of scout out the vicinity unfortunately they got soon swarmed by lots of lizard folk and they were kind of surrounded but the lizard folk kind of came slowly and they were about level 12 at this point so they you know they made easy work of the lizard folk and instead of you know ending all this narratively and uh kind of moving on to the next section of the adventure What I did was I stayed in this encounter for far too long. It took about maybe 40 or 45 minutes of them having reinforcements come in, kind of finding them, having, you know, at certain moments a a variety of, you know, um, spellcasters and shamans come in because I figured things were boring. But instead of, you know, moving on to what's actually important in the story and what's actually interesting, I stayed in this encounter. So I think this exemplifies perfectly the lack of purpose. This encounter had no purpose. Um, I didn't know what to do. I didn't want to push the players out of something they wanted to do. But I should have known when to go back to a narrative stance and uh, kind of skip the the combat altogether at this point.
1: Well, anyway, 45 minutes is rookie numbers compared to my combat encounters (laughs) as durations. Uh... I had combat encounters that lasted entire sh- sessions. We like ended it, ended the session in front of the encounter, started the session, and then when the session ended, the combat encounter also ended uh so like three hours combat encounters,
3: yeah, but I think axel means like there was sort of meaningless less forty five minutes you know? yeah
1: yeah i i uh, I can understand that i um I, yeah, I, I think it could have been done, maybe better, maybe if like the lizard folks in two rounds got fireballed twice and like people were getting scorched left and right, maybe they immediately, even maybe after the first fireball, they immediately started retreating. Um, And to like, just make it instead of uh, have for, uh, 45 minutes, if it, gets on, it gets only 15 minutes. And it, it makes the party feel powerful. Like clearly these villagers, lizard folk villagers have no no chance against them. And they're mm-hmm. not suicidal. That's what I would have done in that encounter personally.
0: Yeah, I think it's important to recognize and that's a thing I've learned after, you know, a lot of DMing, is Recognizing when an encounter is done and has served its purpose, even though it had none, but imagining that it had a purpose in the first place, um, you know, even if you have if you have a boss fight, for example, um, the boss fight can last for a while, but after a while, as with all things, tension starts to dwindle down and down, and so I think it's important as a DM to know when to just end the encounter, and or at least you know when to push it towards its inevitable end uh faster than normal and make sure that the the pacing doesn't get hurt by you being too attached to whatever this is supposed to be
2: yeah or reintroducing new tension into the encounter exactly th- which is why you try to bring in the shamans but that's yes. just additional enemies so what what i think you could have done instead was if they were there uh your players were there, uh, at the lizard place with an army they probably had an important NPC that they knew, like a commander with the army or someone that they at least talked to or had like a relation to. And what you could have maybe done is have them be captured and then brought into the encounter as a hostage situation, for example. That reintroduces, it, it's less combat focused. It can be resolved with combat again, but it, it, re, it reintroduces the tension into the encounter. Hmm.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good suggestion, actually. To have something else break up the situation. Uh, we talked about this before with The Hag a bit earlier, about uh, keeping surprise and changing the situation yeah. when it's not favorable for you as, for, as a DM. Not in terms of um, you being up against your players, because you always will be, because you're the DM, but instead of it's not favorable for entertainment purposes. It's not interesting. And I think... You know, one of the lessons that's uh, the most important is if an encounter is boring, just ditch it. Yeah. Or end it as quickly as possible, if you if you notice that.
2: If it makes sense, narratively. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, just because the boss encounter is boring doesn't mean you should skip it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess that's, a, that's also a good topic to talk about. Um, how to end an encounter when it's, you know, got to the end. What can you do? Because, of course, you can always say... Uh, the easy ways, like the enemy phillies, if it's a combat encounter, or, um, you know, the enemy, you can modulate the the remaining HP of the enemy, for example, to make it a bit quicker, if you feel like it's just going to be a slog and there's not going to be any chance that anything uh, interesting happens. But what do you guys think are other ways of ending encounters? Uh, Pat, for example, would you... Um,
3: Well, in general... uh well, last time actually, a, little, a couple of weeks ago, it was the second to last session and we had this problem where combat was quite long and um, it was, qu- for, from my point of view at least, it, because I knew the stats and stuff, what the monster's going to do, I knew the PCs are going to win eventually. But it's going to take another five combat rounds that I would have to start the next session with, right? Of not very interesting end of combat. Uh, So not great at a session, so I don't know if I did it properly, that could be a wrong actually and not the right answer here, but uh, I basically said that uh, at the end of the session you guys are probably gonna be able to kill uh, those monsters and uh, maybe I should have come up with something better, Uh, let me think if I can come up with something. Well if your PCs are high level or not completely like barely alive. Then you can introduce a new threat or a change of pace. For example, with the um, the lizardfolk, uh, the first thing I thought when you told me about the encounter was, uh, well, the, the army suddenly um, like retreats and you don't know why. Then you hear like chanting coming from the corridors. Is the lizardfolk shamans or druids, and they cast earthquake, and then suddenly the whole thing changes into like, first of all, everyone takes some damage if they can take it. Second of all, the cave starts crumbling, so they actually are in trouble. Maybe they have to teleport out. Or dig out their way. In my case my party was quite low level and they were like pretty bloodied so I, I struggled to find actually a, a like realistic reason why would these basically beasts just leave them alone or like run away where they acted with such purpose before um, even though some of them like started retreating as they had lower hit points some of them would still have quite a lot and uh, yeah maybe, maybe uh, it's something worth considering how to like, every time I make an encounter, I should maybe think like what the enemy's goal is, how would they, why would they ever retreat? How would this combat change if it was boring? Like a backup combat essentially Mm -hmm. plan.
2: I actually think that thinking about the reasons and the resources that your NPCs have is is a great way outside of modules where things are pretty rigid um, to balance encounters. If you have a faction and you draw yourself up a picture of what resources they have in regards to manpower and money and whatever resources need gunpowder or something like that I think it gets easier to manage the encounters and also make them more meaningful because you can't just pull out three bandits right? If, if they don't exist, if the faction doesn't have the resources, right? it makes it more realistic, more immersive
0: hmm so what you guys uh, both had was changing the situation either by bringing in you guys or completely making it so the combat is not possible because something else is happening. For example, the earthquake. Um Pablo, I, I you have something to say?
1: Yeah, I, I personally either I mean I I've, I not, not that every counter that I do is good, but I don't think any encounter I do is necessarily boring. Uh I would say um but i i think it's pretty clear when a monster so like if a group of people or even monsters when you go into a combat you don't expect any of you to die i mean maybe you die of course but you're going with the goal to kill everybody uh or capture them or whatever side goal you have to take their uh in uh, the last encounter encounter, for example the they were on a ship and merfolk attacked them and they wanted their uh, transport uh, uh, booty on the ship. Uh, So they wanted to sink the ship and take the booty. They didn't care about their lives uh, necessarily. Um, But as soon as, so, and there were 11 merfolk. Uh, As soon as one died, they were already like, what the fuck is happening here? It's already like, they were in retreat mode. Um, and, uh, the goal of them is not anymore to like take the booty is just to survive. And, uh, if, in my opinion, if the players are pursuing them, that means they care and maybe they're not bored necessarily of the combat encounter. If they don't pursue them, like, oh, great, this combat encounter is over. They're retreating. Fuck them. Um, and yeah, so I generally. When the tide is turning and the creatures are smart, I end the combat pretty early and start either surrendering or retreating with my Mm -hmm. Mm mobs. That makes sense as well, right?
2: Absolutely. Retreating is a great point because unless you're dealing with fanatics, probably cults and stuff. Or undead. Or undead. Yeah, most people won't fight until death. Life mm-hmm. is pretty important to the individual, usually, mostly their own. So retreating is a perfectly sensible option. It's uh, very underused, I found.
0: Unless they have a, yeah, like a real good reason. I don't see why any random guy you meet uh, out in the wilds, for example, is going to, you know, sacrifice his life when he can just exactly. offer his gold and walk away.
1: Yeah, yeah. and if you're an, an attacked by a band of wolves, if you kill the big wolf from the pack, the rest of the pack is gonna scurry away, like realize that they fucked up, Mm -hmm. even with four intelligence. Mm -hmm.
3: I think that makes sense, but sometimes you can run into a situation with like animals or more often, if you have like, um, if the PCs have a reason to chase after bandits, right? They're like, oh, we don't want them to go to Bandit Hideout and warn them or something, right? Uh, Then you can turn maybe into like a dragged out chase I as a DM feel like well I'm obligated to give my PCs a chance to kill them, but it would be faster to just say they get away or something like that, or they fall to the ground and beg. Like, I guess you can have them just give up instantly. But
0: I think this is where you have a uh, like, there's a a way you can do that. Either uh, you can have there are chasing rules that you can use. But I feel like most of the time you won't necessarily, like, it's not necessarily interesting. Because, for example, if it's just a group of plain old bandits, you have level 5 adventures, they're probably going to be able to catch up to them. It's just going to take a while. So in that case, I think uh, that's one of the exits to an encounter we haven't talked about yet, at least not in this way. It's uh, a narrative exit. Just finishing up the encounter via, well, uh, as you defeat the the chieftain, or the uh, the bandit lord, um, the rest of them are just, you know, random bandits. They're not a challenge to you and you overcome them over the next maybe 10 or so minutes before they surrender. You know, or you chase down the walls through the forest about an hour later, uh, you finally find them exhausted not having been able to flee further and there your quarry has ended.
3: W- would you hide it behind the skill check or would you just give it to the players?
0: I think it depends on what you're trying to achieve. If it's... uh, Basically, if it's trivial, I feel like I would not use a skill check. If there's no chance of failure, I think that's a good lesson in general as a DM. I wouldn't use a skill check. And if... uh, Or if failure just costs the time that the the players have. So they could just try again and try again and try again and maybe take days. But if they have days, they're willing to spend it. I, I don't make them roll. Um... Feel like rolling? Might, it is good because then you you know you can use the specialities of your characters uh, to go ahead and find them. Maybe you have a ranger who's super good at tracking. You can use his skills to track, and that makes the players feel uh, the players feel a bit better. But also, it can kind of put an element of uh, uncertainty as well. For example, if you have the same ranger. Why can't they find the bandits, for example, when they're just running through the woods, you see? So, I think you, you gotta be careful with um where you put in skill checks, because they skill checks mean something. They're hiding something, or they're protecting something, and if they're rolled meaninglessly, I feel like they just drag on the encounter as well.
3: Yeah, I think that's a good point. Probably, like, if it's trivial and someone's, like, skilled in survival...
2: Just mm-hmm.
3: Success,
2: yeah. which is why i enjoy running uh, <clears throat> these chase scenes in a more narrative way mm-hmm. I have them do a skill check if it's needed but more because environmental hazards like um, just passerbys running into their way a crowd where they could lose the enemies those are reasons why i would run skill checks and but i wouldn't I, that's more like a fear of mine stuff I think Mm. chase scenes are not made for any visual encounters with, like, battle maps and stuff. It's just Mm. a hindrance. Yes, I agree.
0: And at that point, uh, I think one important thing to keep in mind is if you have a, a combat encounter and then you shift into a chase scene, at this point, these are two different encounters. They're not yeah. the same encounter. They're two different encounters. So then you got to think, why am I having a chase scene? Why, you know, what's the purpose of it? What do I want to put into it to make it interesting?
3: Mm. But you know what's going to happen? You're going to have that player who's Warlock, who has 300 feet range of Eldritch Blast. <laughs> is going to ask you to cast, as long as he's in range, he's going to ask you to, like, you know, a chance to hit it every time.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I'm and he's going to hit all, all the... Um, normal commoners that are lining the roads you know unless you're not in a city or uh you know where no where no people are he's gonna kill innocents and i hope your player is all right with that that his alignment allows for that Um, but i think if i recall correctly and correct me if i'm wrong the dungeon master handbook um actually asks you to do chase scenes with rolling initiative and it like gives you specific rules for like how to do chases, and I find them not good. I don't like to apply them. They're uh, I agree. The, like holding to movement rules and initiative rules is so very unlike a chase scene. It takes all of the dynamicism out of chasing. Yeah, it also
3: know? runs into problems with like certain rules. For example. Yes. Uh, if you have a character that has legendary actions, they can use them as a movement after each character's turn. So they, in combat, have a huge amount of movement. If you mm-hmm. translate it equally, I was smiling because in his game, we had like a vampire or a vampire spawn or something.
1: Uh, uh, yeah.
3: And he basically got away because, well, turns out if he can move his movement uh, three times and dash, well, he can lose 150 feet per round easily flying. So impossible to catch up in theory. He's so a legendary like, creature. He's a legendary creature. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so the but the point is that what I imagine a vampire chasing look like is that the vampires may be a little bit faster than the PCs, you know? Um mm-hmm. uh, whereas in by by the rules, if you make it a combat encounter, the vampire is a fucking bowling, you know, going at a sound speed and stuff.
1: Yeah, I mean it it depends, uh like if if you, as a DM, do uh, some things that your players do, players do, then then the players complain a lot. But if a monk suddenly moves at 150 feet without any legendary actions, then it's it's okay. Why are you nerfing my character? <laughs> uh, but same
3: with range from spells yeah. and stuff. Yeah. I think. I mean you just have to agree maybe if you want to have narrative resolving into like combat or chase scene you have to agree be like hey you know I know your monk moves a 100 feet around but it's a chase scene role I don't know I,
1: I, I can't I, say it, maybe I, I prefer to not do ability checks or uh actual chase scenes for example when you fought the Murfolk and Shory wanted to send his octopuses to capture two of them uh and uh the Octopus has 60 feet of of swimming speed and the morphok had only 40. And I say, okay, they go and they capture that. Very fast. Because mm-hmm. that would have happened. I don't like I don't know. Overcomplicates things. Maybe if it's no, a, think... maybe it's a good system of chasing that makes sense, that maybe gives a bonus, depending on your movement speed, or uh, the difficulty of the terrain, how you are okay with it, like, maybe if you're fire resistant and you're chasing through a desert, it's better. I don't know. It would be kind of complicated, but maybe it could work. I just didn't find any chase system that was good.
0: Yeah, I think this is where you gotta be careful of the uh, the difference in, in an encounter between uh, running it narratively, running it uh, mechanically, and having, like, a hybrid of both. For example, like a skill challenge. Um, well, there are multiple, of, multiple ways of doing chasings. Like many people have posted theirs online. There are many homebrew solutions. Um, personally, I use skill challenges often because they're dope and you can do a lot of things with them. And they're also not complicated. But, you know, I can see how if you want to specifically design an encounter around being a chasing, you could find uh, rules that kind of go with it. But I think the the important lesson here might be that you gotta have a system and mechanics that are adapted to the impression you're trying to give. Um, if you know, if you if you use uh, movement rules on a battle map for a chasing, it might not be adapted and it might just take ages and not have the feeling that you're trying to get of urgency and everybody rushing and you know having to make split-second decisions. Kind of goes back into the atmosphere of the encounter. Yeah. Very true.
3: Did we do all the encounters? No,
1: we still have Nick.
0: We still have Nick. a true. Nick's encounter true. to Nick, talk about. Why
3: are you not saying anything?
0: Uh well
2: I thought I could get around it and not embarrass myself with the bad encounters I run, but uh here I go, I guess. You should have say a good one, yeah, should have picked a good one then. Uh, yeah, I should have, but I I said I'm gonna do a wrong encounter. And I'm gonna stick by my choices. Okay. Um so th- this is going to be funny because you were all part of that encounter. Um, it happened right after the uh, whole party was knocked out and you woke up in a winter sanctuary. Um, you, you fought a cult at the... Uh, well, you've been fighting a cult the whole time. And as soon as you stepped out, you came into like a, a r- sacrifice um, that was prepared and you were meant to be the sacrifice and you were to be sacrificed by battle. So you had a chance of survival by winning. Now, that in itself isn't, isn't too bad. Um, I think the setups are right. What made the encounter bad, in my opinion, was that due to previous results in the sessions, one of the players, Axel in this case, his PC, turned into a vampire. And this ties in nicely with the foreshadowing part. All the enemies obviously knew he was a vampire because he was turned while he uh, was captured in that sanctuary. So they all had silver weapons. My players didn't know that. And it came as a great surprise when suddenly this vampire who thought, oh, you know, I'm a vampire. If they have regular weapons, I'm I'm not in too much danger, had no resistance whatsoever because those were silver weapons. And I think that turned the encounter really, really bad because it made it unbalanced. And in hindsight, what I should have done is have maybe ornaments on the wall, weapons made of silver that the players can look at. The, oh, there are silver weapons in this building, Um, which is one part why the encounter was bad. And the second part was that, which is no fault of the player at all. It's again, my fault as a DM. Um, It's a new player who didn't know how vampires react to healing magic and to divine magic as a cleric. And he ended up finishing the player, the vampire, off because he used healing magic and uh, instead of giving blood or whatever. And that's also something that I should have made clear. I tried to do that by offering the vampire uh, player character a bl- a f- blood from a fountain while they were working their way out of the sanctuary. Um, but probably didn't make it clear enough, which is why this miscommunication happened. So besides foreshadowing, also making that foreshadowing clear enough for your players is very important. So it comes down to communication and to how you present things as a DM. But that's not something you can just say how you to do in general, because it really depends on the makeup of your party and their intelligence scores, and your intelligence score as a DM. So yeah, that's my bad encounter.
1: One of many. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the reason why the healing part was a bit weird was that uh, it doesn't really align with 5e almost at all. Like, if you heal a skeleton, you're not gonna damage it by true. the rules. True. If you heal a. That. If yeah, you heal. A... A you can do, but it has no effect. No, it's immune. No, no, no. It's like. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing you can
3: it doesn't work on, on the cost
1: yeah, healing. You know. Yeah. I would imagine like if you we were in a video game term, the healing would go off and it would pop a zero on top. Yeah. You, you healed him for zero. You wasted your spell slot and uh, shit happened. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, so then that, that was um, very unintuitive
2: a bit. From a, from a player perspective, again, that that is very true because it's not specified in the rules as much. But that's because there's not really a a vampire player race. I think there's an unearthed arcana material, which is very unbalanced for vampire player uh, mechanics. Is it? Uh, Yes, very, very much so. Um, Did I seem so? I think what we um, settled on, which is why Blood would heal, was, um, well, obviously vampire lore and also. I think it was from from the bite mechanic. Because correct me if I'm wrong, um, the vampire if they bite someone, they uh, deal necrotic damage, and the vampire heals an equal amount to that damage. Mm-hmm. And piggybacking off of that mechanic, um, we adapted that to the player character. Um, that, but again, the 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 encounter turned bad because it was unintuitive from From the rules for the players, because this is a very homebrew stuff that we did there. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't all, it wasn't shown to the players that that is how it works, and that's show don't tell. I mean, I could have told them, but that would have been boring. You know, mm-hmm. but I also didn't show them because, uh, well, I don't know. I was I was a new DM, still am.
0: I think you had the right idea, uh, and you you had. A, like a few subtle clues uh, during the whole thing, but these went unnoticed. And this is where I have a tip actually to talk about, which is uh, it's it's talked about by, by a lot of people. It came from the Alexandrian uh, website mm-hmm. if you if you want to check that one out. Uh, really, good out DMT's the yeah. really good tips all over. Yeah, yeah. And uh, one of the rules uh, they talk about is the three clue rule, which means whenever you wanna tell something to the players and make sure they know it, you gotta put at least three ways they can find it. Because they're likely to miss the first one, misinterpret the second one, but at least they have the third one to fall back on. And I think one rule you can add on top of that is if even three doesn't work, if five doesn't work, sometimes you just gotta tell the players outright uh, if there's a misunderstanding, just so they don't waste time, you know, trying something that you know won't work and it's going to take up maybe like 20 minutes of the session and and make them feel bad, make you feel bad because the pacing is all over now or, you know, in a fight, they don't understand the mechanics. Sometimes it's best to reformulate and explain more than staying mysterious and trying to keep the idea of the encounter you had Uh, because it might just be more fun for the player to understand what's going on instead of, you know, being confused.
2: Yeah. Yeah
3: i agree if it was like the the vampire was full health and uh, he was about to be he- well he was slightly damaged i suppose and he was about to be healed then oh yeah this is a great learning moment to introduce this mechanic that healing deals damage to vampires if he's on his last the saving throw probably not the best educational <laughs> moment
2: but, but then i'm, I'm I, a stickler for the rules so I, 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 need am, to keep I am the world consistent. Oh,
3: it wasn't my character. I am uh, impressed by the level of commitment <laughs> to the to the homebrew, but uh, I mean, it does feel, it also feels doubly bad because it was player fucking up a player unintentionally. Yeah. I mm. would feel, I would feel pretty bad about it. Um, I felt you know, pretty like bad a,
2: about it for an hour or so.
3: I'm sorry. Mm. I, I mean, it, it is what it is, but um, <laughs>
0: I guess, yeah. They will make I, mistakes.
3: Yeah. I, I don't think it's, I mean, it's bad when a character dies, isn't it? But uh, it's
2: a learning experience. Yeah, I think
3: it's okay with the with the silver. I guess uh, you could like start off. Uh, I don't remember how exactly the encounter went. I'm gonna be 100 percent honest. I'm like struggling to remember the details, but um, because it was like the first time I played with you. all. Um, but cool. uh, uh, with like the silver weapon, maybe I would have in the first combat round the, uh, try and have only like some damage on the vampire, and he's like, oh shit, these weapons work on me, and then he can adjust. I don't remember if that was the case or not. In the second round, be like, maybe more careful, you know? Yeah. Because he's not invincible anymore. But with, yeah, with, unfortunately, probably the healing mechanic didn't have the time to be introduced like that. And uh, maybe at that point, Ax- I agree with Axel, I would probably be like, hey, you know, so you're a cleric, and you have religion or whatever, you have 10 intelligence, and it occurs to you that uh, this healing power that you're now releasing, might it feels like it doesn't find purchase on the body yeah. of the undead creature it actually might hurt it do you still want to cast a spell or do you want to stop or maybe just cast something else even at the you could even be this generous to let them change the action completely or just tell them they waste the spell slot but they don't have to hurt their ally
2: yeah that that's a good tip in general actually don't be afraid as a dm to prompt rolls from your players even when their their actions don't demand a skill check or anything Mm -hmm. it's actually a a technique that my first DM used when I was a completely new player in the first session Um, she told me that I had a feeling that it was a good idea to write about now start praying to my god because it would hit the fan and made me uh, roll religion and that's uh, a great way to ease in players of all levels uh, into playing their characters so good, Mm -hmm. good tip that one
0: yeah Especially don't be afraid to uh, make very low DC rolls for things that should be obvious because you gotta keep in mind as a DM especially the characters and the players have vastly different knowledges. You know 10 times more than anyone else about the world so you know everything. For you it's easy to know that uh, oh, this door with these symbols that's obvious they should remember it from 25 sessions ago when I showed them this symbol. Uh, But, you know, the players are fallible, and even the characters are, and sometimes it might be worth it to just uh, prompt for an intelligence check with a DC of maybe 10 or 12, you know, depending on the uh, the harshness of the information Uh, But just to remind them and tell them, ah, you remember that symbol and maybe they even fail maybe they get a 5 and then you can at least give them a hint hmm, you recall a symbol. And then, you know, the mechanism is activated and they can themselves go and seek the information. But just uh, keeping in mind that sometimes uh, players need or might use a bit of guidance because their characters would would know. Yeah, I would
3: even go beyond that and say, if you want, I think I've heard it somewhere else. So credit to whoever I've heard it from. But if you want your players to know something, just tell them. Um. don't, don't hide it behind the skill check because they're not going to roll or they're not gonna, going to score it, even if it's trivial. If there's an information that someone a- and if there's information someone asks about, I usually think about this. If this is semi-common knowledge, if they're proficient in the skill, they just know it because mm-hmm. they're trained in it. If they're a, a acolyte, they know religion, they know what deities are, they don't have to roll to know like a main pantheon deity and what their like abilities are. If it's obscure, then sure, make it a difficult roll. And uh, if if it's obscured, and yeah, I would say maybe you know someone who's in proficient profession just doesn't know. What no matter what their role is, I, I like to like th- this way. The skills also feel more impactful where um, you can't just lack your way into some mm-hmm. ancient knowledge. You have to actually be trained on the subject. Yeah,
0: yeah. Especially, I think this is a good tip for um, at least new DMs in a way because you don't think about the things you know about this fictional world much. But we know more, like, we know what a beholder stat block is as a DM. I think the people in the world that have studied beholders probably know about the same as we do, if you're, you know, training this in in knowing what beholders do. You know, we have Legends here, we have the Loch Ness Monster, we have, I don't know, Frankenstein. Um, I imagine the people in the world would also know about these rumors. They've lived in the world, they know way more than the players might, and even you as a DM... Um, Might think they do. So communication is really important with your players. It's key, Mm -hmm. especially bridging
2: that gap between character knowledge and player knowledge. Because the player just visits that character four hours a week, maybe not even every week, maybe you just have a monthly session. But the characters living in that world, bridging that gap is, I think, one of the most challenging things as a DM. Because when do you tell them too little and when do you tell players too much?
0: That's a very good question to ask, uh, which I think we can probably talk about next time because we're reaching the end of our segment here. Uh, But just to recap what we talked about today. We went through a a couple of good encounters, a couple of bad encounters, uh, and talked about the lessons we could learn. Um, Important to try and keep the players on their toes. If a situation starts getting stale, just change it up a bit. Make sure something unexpected happens or the conditions of the fight change, if it's a fight or another encounter, might be a social encounter. Um, It's important to foreshadow the mechanics, but also the story elements of what's happening during the encounter to make sure that the players have a basis on which to stand on, that they know what they're going in at least somewhat, so that they're invested. It's difficult to invest yourself in something you don't understand. Um, It's good to try and engage everyone, which is, whether you're a combat-focused character, or, or maybe you're more of a support character, making sure that everyone has something to do during the encounter is really important. Otherwise, you're gonna have players sitting on the, on the side bench, not doing anything, uh, being real bored. Um, we talked about the stakes and the importance of having a goal to the encounter and a, a purpose to the encounter. Um, if, you know, there are no stakes, why have the encounter at all? Uh, because things would be the same without or uh, with or without it. And then we talked about other means of winning. Um, this was especially because of the demiplane battle that uh, Patchy talked about. Uh, maybe a puzzly way of ending a combat that is not just you kill me, I kill you to end the encounter. Uh, Nick, what do you think a uh, couple of lessons you learned from today's discussion of?
2: Ooh, there's so many. Uh, I think the most important is actually uh, communication. Uh, second of all, well, is m- my feeling. Probably doesn't apply to a- everyone. But I think incorporating the environment. Because really, Pat's encounter is, is really inspiring. Because that's that's an encounter I would love to be part of. Keeping the environment... Within the encounter and keeping the mechanics are it. from Reddit, Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what, that. That's what I all say when they get complimented on an encounter. They picked it from somewhere else. Well, I think um, keeping, making it so that the encounter isn't just rolling dice and moving your token on a battle map is very important. Um.
0: This has been. Very good to talk to you guys. Uh, I think yep. we've all learned a lot about these encounters that we uh, we actually hadn't have time to talk about before now, so I think it's pretty good that we review them now.
2: Absolutely.
1: Sure, it's nice talking to you guys.
0: Alrighty, well this will be posted on YouTube and uh, other platforms. Uh, please join the Cardinal ah. Directions YouTube Uh you know, like and subscribe, all of that. If you wanna be updated, uh, if you have any ideas <laughs> of topics we could do for the uh, the next sessions, uh, just lay them down in the comments. If you have encounters that you'd like to talk about, I'm sure there are a lot of people in the community who would like to talk to you about them and give uh, you know give feedback. Uh, make sure you get the the best support from the community. So this was Cardinal Directions and uh we'll see you guys next time
1: bye 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 Bye.